You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Let's turn to God's Word. And again, if you are a visitor, we are delighted that you're able to be here and to share with us. In the mornings, we've been looking through the book of Isaiah, and we're coming this morning to Isaiah chapter 55 from verse 6 um, to the end of the chapter, verses 1 to 5. Isaiah has, uh, or God speaking through Isaiah, has invited us to come to him, but also indicated that he's seeking us. And then we read these words, I think. Just in the police, if you can. That's it. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. So we are told to seek the Lord. It's one of those words, if, you're, if you've been in Christian church, evangelical churches a lot, then you know this, seek God, seek the Lord. But if you stop and you think about it, that's actually not just as quite a, a simple a thing to explain it. it. It becomes very quickly jargon. So, for example, someone once said to me, why is he lost? Well, of course, God is not lost. And someone else would say, well, how do we seek God? What does that mean? Um, I'm looking at you. I'm sure all of you have got more sense than this, but maybe some of you have played Pokemon Go. Uh, for all you know, this may be a hotspot here. Uh, that's how some churches are enticing people. And if you have no idea what Pokemon Go is, don't worry. It's not worth bothering about. It'll be gone by next year. But there are people wandering around. I saw a couple wandering around the office on, uh, last week looking intently at their phones because it's a game whereby you chase virtual characters who are in real places. And apparently it's an extremely addictive game. I don't know, I haven't tried it, and because I have an addictive personality, I'm not going to try it. But um, people, you know, you're wandering around searching for these elusive figures. And some people think that that's what this means in terms of seeking God. How do we seek God? Is it to find out who God is? Is it to find out where he is? Is he missing and that's not how the word is used here. It's not what's meant here. This is, does not mean looking for something or someone who is lost. It means, well, the Bible will often use this phrase, seeking God's face. And it means being in the presence of God. Now, in one sense, we always are because God is everywhere. But in another sense, it is a conscious awareness of the reality of the presence of God. And for those who have experienced that, it is, a, it is an awesome, awesome thing. It is something that we all need. And by the way, even if you're a non-believer here, it is something that you will experience one way or another. Because one day you will enter in to the presence of God. When you die, it's not the end. You enter into the presence of God and you will see his face in judgment. But we are urged here to seek him on this earth. Now, 
these first two verses, we'll just go through this, and these first two verses are telling us that in order to seek God, we need what we call repentance. We are to call upon Him, which implies both in worship and in repentance. And repentance is, again, another one of those religious words that we know if we're Christians, we're supposed to do. You become a Christian by doing it, but what does it actually mean? Well, Isaiah helpfully explains, let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. We're called to forsake our ways, change the way we think, and turn to God. God doesn't say to us, I'm going to do you a deal. You carry on thinking the way you want. You carry on doing what you're doing, and we'll kind of work out some kind of compromise. The call to real Christianity is something that is so radical that it involves changing the way that you think and giving up your life to follow Jesus Christ. The mind, the will, the habits, and our plans are all challenged. You say, this doesn't apply to me because I read this and it says, let the wicked forsake their ways. And that's not me. I'm not the wicked. ISIS are the wicked. Child murderers are the wicked. I'm not the wicked. I'm a fairly decent person. Well, wicked in the Bible has a slightly different connotation that we might put upon it. It's a comparative term which describes anyone whose conduct falls short of what God requires, either whether as an individual or as a society. And I certainly don't know your sins. I don't know everything about you. And you probably don't know everything about you. But one thing I do know, and one thing you should be assured of, and one thing I know about myself, is that I fall way short of the standard that God requires. Way short. And so does our society. So this does apply to us. And we are to do two things. One is negative, one is positive. The first is we are to forsake. Forsake is a word that we might use in terms of somebody who's a friend or somebody who you love, and you you forsake them, you leave them, you turn your back on them, you don't have anything to do with them. Well, here we're being called to turn our back on our sin, turn our back on the wrong things in life. And that is not easy. It is not easy at all. Just as it is difficult for an alcoholic to give up alcohol or a drug addict to give up drugs, so it is difficult for any human being to turn their back on sin. Because another thing I can simply guarantee, you leave the door here, you speak to me at the door, and you say to me, David, I'm going to go a whole week without doing anything thinking anything or saying anything wrong. I know that next week when I meet you at the door and say, did you manage it? If you said yes, you've just committed another sin because you just lied, but you're stuck. We're there. We, We just have this inherent something within us that causes us to rebel and turn against God. Now, that's the negative. We have to forsake that. There's a positive. We are to turn to the Lord. Let them turn to the Lord. True repentance is not just saying, okay, I did all these wrong things, I'm going to avoid all these wrong things. 
but it's turning to what is right. And the only way this works is if we have an appropriate personal relationship with the God who works and who saves. We commit ourselves to God. We say, I can't do this, but I commit myself to you. John L. Mackay puts it beautifully when he says, it's the rebel returning from a self-willed life who has to abandon his thoughts of independence and autonomy and accept the reality and comprehensive nature of the requirements of the king. Now, our culture is pushing precisely the opposite way. Why do people want euthanasia? I don't think the number one reason is because of they want to avoid pain. That's understandable. The number one reason is because people want to be in charge of their own bodies and their own lives and so on. What's the justification for abortion? It's my body. I can do with it as I wish. Apart from the logic that there's another body involved, the faultiness in that. It's still, that's what people say. There was a woman in California this week who held a party. And I I cannot, to me, this is almost like the end of the world. She held a party in which she invited 40 or 50 people who came for a celebration. And at the end of that two-day party, she killed herself because she had an illness. And people came knowing that that was going to happen. And people write saying, what a beautiful thing, what a wonderful thing. It's not a beautiful thing at all. It's a horrible, horrendous, evil thing. We think we are in charge. We think we are in control. Again, without making a political point, whatever the rights and wrongs of the Brexit vote, one of the slogans was, take back control. Never, never. You are not in control. You don't have control of your life. You, you have no control. But we keep saying we are. We shall be as God. It's my body. It's my life. I will do what I want. And we have to turn away from that. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And one thing that all of you will decide even as you listen to this is you are deciding, am I giving my life to God or am I taking control myself? It won't work. Here as well, there's a real urgency. The time is short. Seek him while he may be found. Now, that doesn't imply that there are some spaces where God is not, but it does mean about the availability of God. So that, for example, right now, you are in a season of time where for whatever reason, God has brought you here and God is bringing you his word. And you can keep saying no. No, no, no. It doesn't mean that God will keep saying, inviting you. This is the time. You seek him while he may be found. And then notice the generosity involved. He will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Our God will, uh, the old translation, abundantly pardon What's being suggested here is that we come as rebels to God and God doesn't say, okay, I will forgive you, just behave yourself, and it's this kind of reluctance thing. It is the opposite. It is the father running to the prodigal son and embracing. 
It is a wonderful, wonderful picture. Our God is a God who abundantly pardons. Now let's go on to uh, the next couple of verses. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now I hope that you grasp this. Um, I can explain in a way that this, this really helped me and encouraged me uh, as a Christian this week. We, we often quote these verses in Isaiah 56, and we quote them separately, but they come together. This section on needing to repent, and then the section we'll look at just at the end about the fruitfulness of God's word, they're joined together looking backward and forward by these two verses on God's thoughts. I think if you grasp this, actually, it will make a phenomenal difference to your life. There's a vast gap between our goodness and God's goodness. That's not what's been spoken of here. It's not the moral gap. What has been spoken of here is what we might call the intellectual and strategic gap. We think we can tell God what to do. We think we know what is best. We say, sometimes if you're not a Christian, you get non-Christians saying this, and even Christians, that we will believe in a God who behaves in a way that we consider to be rational and we consider to be the best way. What God is doing here is he's coming to us and he's saying, it's not your thoughts and your ways, it's my thoughts and my ways. And why this is difficult for us to grasp is because every one of us filters everything we receive through our own thoughts. There's a mind game that you can play, which goes like this. Can you prove that there are any other conscious minds than your own? And that's really very, very difficult. Because you are the only conscious mind that you know or directly experience. And so the trouble with that then becomes this. That what we do is the way that we think becomes the way that the world is and becomes the way that we perceive God. And God, in order to shatter us out of that, says, you need to stop. Because that's not how I think. We are to abandon our ways and abandon our plans, and instead, we need to acquiesce in, even if we do not fully understand all the time, God's ultimate master plan. His plan takes into account every single eventuality. Ours cannot. Uh, I play chess. I like playing chess, and I'm a reasonable player, but not a brilliant player. Uh, I got beat by a kid, uh, a 10-year-old kid, uh, four years ago in a tournament at one here in Dundee, and I was a bit annoyed because he wasn't even graded, and I'm a graded player. I'm not so annoyed now. He's just become a master. He's got a top grading and everything. I think, ah, well, I discovered that kid. He beat me first. Uh, That's the way I look at it. But when you play chess, good players think two, three, maybe four or five moves ahead. A brilliant player will see patterns without even almost thinking about them. In life, we are like the chess player who sees two, three moves ahead, but God sees the whole game. He sees everything. The scope and the character of God's plan should leave us utterly amazed because our problem is we are too small-minded. God's thoughts are far more reaching and fertile than ours. Now, I think this was hard for the 
people in Isaiah's day to grasp. Their world was contracting. Their world was splitting apart. And this grandiose vision at the end of Isaiah must have appeared far too big, too vast to understand, too ambitious. And Isaiah doesn't say, okay, let me dumb this down for you. Let me just give it to you in wee bite sizes so that you can get it, so that you can understand, so that you grasp God. He goes, of course, God's thoughts are as high above yours as the heavens are above the earth. Your human mind, our human minds are limited and sinful. And this is real. Now, honestly, if you grasp this, it will make a phenomenal difference. I want to give you two quotes from uh, Monsieur Calvin, uh, which I thought were wonderful. Commenting on this, he says, Men are wont to judge and measure God from themselves, for their hearts are moved by angry passions and are very difficult to be appeased, and therefore they think they cannot be reconciled to God when they have once offended him. But the Lord shows that he's far from resembling man, as if he had said, I'm not a mortal man that I should show myself to be harsh and irreconcilable to you. My thoughts are very different from yours. If you are implacable and can with difficulty be brought back to a, a state of friendship with those from whom you've received an injury, I am not like you that I should treat you so cruelly. Now just think about that for a moment. I, I wanted to put it up on the screen because it's ancient English, although it was originally ancient French. Um, but it's an amazing insight because you see you have a temper and you have a spirit that when someone wrongs you you don't forget it you remember the slights that they have done there are people who you have difficulty looking in the face even shaking their hand because of something they did to you something they said to you and because you are like that in reality, in your heart, you think, well, God's going to be like that. That's how God is. That's what I would do. And so when you become conscious of your own sin, the devil finds it so easy as the accuser to squash you. Because you think, well, God would, must be like me. And what Calvin says is true. God says, no, I'm not like you. I don't think like that. Here's another one. Uh, there is nothing that troubles our consciences more than when we think that God is like ourselves. For the consequence is that we do not venture to approach to him and flee from him as, we flee from him as an enemy and are never at rest. But they who measure God by themselves as a standard <clears throat> have a false idea, standard from a false idea, and therefore an altogether contrary to his nature. Indeed, they cannot do him a greater injury than this. Are men who are corrupted and debased by sinful de desires not ashamed to comp compare God's lofty and uncorrupted nature with their own and to confine what is infinite within these narrow limits by which they feel themselves to be wretchedly restrained? In what prison could any of us be more straightly shut up than in our own unbelief? Now, let me just unpack that just a little bit. When we think God is like ourselves, we are creating a prison. We are creating a prison for ourselves. We, we are creating a field in which the devil has a field day. Because God wants us to see that he in his glory and in his mercy and in his love are far beyond anything that our puny minds could conceive of. That our puny hearts could imagine. 
It's this extraordinary thing by which we think we judge God and then we create God. In what prison could any of us be more straightly shut up than in our own unbelief? And you see how this works in another way. Something really bad happens. Somebody really close to you gets cancer. A child dies. And immediately you think, I wouldn't let that happen if I were God. But do you see what you are doing? You are limiting God to your understanding. You are limiting God to your circumstances. And God says, stop. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And you might go, but, but that's no use to me because I don't understand God's thoughts. I don't. And the answer is, Yes, it is. It is of use to you because you need to know that behind the back screen of your life, which you see, there's a much bigger back screen which God sees and you don't. In other words, if you live life not seeing or understanding that God is behind things and that, that there's a much bigger picture, even if we don't see it, then you think that the way you think is the universe, and it's not. Your life is just a pixel on the biggest screen that could ever exist. How do we know then what God's thoughts are? He tells us. Let's just go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. I just want to stop there just for a second and say this. You under, you, the enormity of what Paul is saying here is you cannot possibly imagine in your wildest dreams what God has prepared for those who love him. You cannot imagine it. Your mind is too small. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we, we, we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. You want to understand the thoughts of God. That's what revelation is. That's what the word of God is. Don't fall into the trap of coming to the Bible and going, I've got much better understanding, so I'm going to take the Bible and I'm going to get the Bible to fit into my world. God says, no, stop. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My words are not your words. You've got it the wrong way around. How do you fit in to my bigger picture? So let's go on. Verse 10. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So you've got the link verses, which tell us that we are to seek God, not the God of our own imagination, but the real God. And they also tell us that his thoughts, and now they tell us this is how his thoughts come out, they're expressed through his words. God spoke and the universe came into being. God is speaking now and his word is recreating. Now, if you look at the text, 
there's a question that for me at least immediately arises. Why God's word is God's word compared with rain and snow? God's thoughts are like the rain and snow. What does that mean? I'll tell you, I think this is what it means. It suggests a slow and silent work transforming the face of the earth in the right time. You think of how the rain works. It does return to where it came from, but it doesn't return without completing its work. And that's how God's word works. That is actually what is happening to you just now. You are listening to God's word, and it is working in your spirit. It is working in your heart. It is working in your mind. 2 Corinthians says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Now, it's talking there about material giving. But the principle still remains the same. The seed that goes to the sower creates bread. It always, always works. And again, that's the tragedy of the church that turns away from the word of God and says, no, we need to adapt this. We need to change this. We need to move this on. Because they are taking the very essence and seed of spiritual life and they are distorting and destroying it. But God says, my word, it will not return to me empty. I want to suggest to you that far too many of us, although we accept that in our heads, emotionally and psychologically, we leave it hanging up. It's like you're being given a promise. Um, I was given a promise recently, which was a wonderful promise. And part of me goes, yeah, right. I'll believe that when I see it. I think that's the attitude that most of us have with the word of God. It's too good to be true. It's too good to be true. But God says, my ways are not your ways. My word is my bond. No sooner is it spoken than it's done. Verse 11 says, look, it can't be frustrated. It will not return to me empty. It will accomplish what I desire. Nothing can frustrate or divert it from its course. There will be a renewed humanity. There will be a renewed universe. There will be a new heavens and earth. The exile that the Jewish people thought that they were hearing about, which they were, it was only the beginning. God's word is always effective. God's word is always transforming. It's why the children through there, the greatest gift that they will get is not a nice smiley sticker book. It's not even nice songs. The greatest gift that they will ever get is if they walk away from this church and the word of God is embedded in their hearts and minds because it will not return to them empty. I think it's just an extraordinary picture. God's word is always transforming. We, um, we live in a beautiful country. I'm not just saying that Scotland is a beautiful country. And one of the reasons it's a beautiful country is it rains. And those of you who go, oh, if only we had weather like the Middle East, well, then you'd have a desert like the Middle East. It rains, and it's wonderful that it rains. Okay, it's nice when it doesn't rain, so that you can enjoy the green bit and the sunshine and all the rest of it. But it's wonderful, because the ground becomes very arid and dry very quickly. But when the rain comes, the seeds work, 
And that's what God is telling us about his, his word. Now let's go on to the next one because these are the results. You, go, you will go out, enjoy, and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into songs before you. And all the trees of the fields will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. And instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Some of you who are old enough will remember the chorus, you shall go out with joy. And one day we will sing it when I manage to teach the praise band. But it's not going to be today. But it's a great, it's a great, it's a beautiful thing. It's saying God's word goes out and the results are joy and peace. It, it's like the exodus or the exile and they come back and they clap their hands. And that's, a, as we know, but why do people clap their hands unless they're Presbyterians? It's a, it's a gesture of joyful acclamation. God's done it. You clap. The curse is gone. The creation has been renewed. It's like you hear the greatest symphony ever composed or the most fantastic work of art ever painted. The whole creation stands in awe of what God has done and applauds. That's what he's saying. He's done it, and it's so good. I was thinking about this, and actually... There's one scene in the Olympics. I haven't been watching much of the Olympics at all. Uh, I'm not a big fan personally. But apart from the the two Irish boys from Cork, they were fabulous. Um, The interview they gave, you have to see that. That is just joyful in itself. But the most joyful moment of the whole Olympics is the Fijian rugby team. Beating Britain, and the commentator didn't get it. Because afterwards, they knelt to pray, and the commentator said they're crying. No, they weren't. They were praying. And then they hugged each other and they sang, we have overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of his testimony. I'm not sure that's a great scriptural application in terms of beating somebody at sport. Um, And I'd love to see that one being tried at Dens or at Tanadice. But you could see, just look at the picture on the BBC of their faces as they look heavenwards. And you can see that in their heart, they are giving joy and praise to God. One... uh, commentator in the Guardian, I just thought it was great, it was so patronizing, but in Fiji, the two great loves are rugby and the church. Well, their great love is God. Uh, We used to have a Fijian uh, rugby player who was a free church minister, Sam Tamata, a great guy up in Loch Inver. And you see it there, and you see that on their face. There is a joy and a peace that comes. It's the joy of sins being forgiven. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, it's the burden being lifted from his back. It is the peace of being made right with God. It is the ultimate relationship restored. It is the child, the long-lost child come home. It is the husband and wife who are divorced being reunited. It is all these and much, much more. The results of God's word are joy and peace. And there's a restoration of paradise as well, the everlasting fruit. The thorn bush is a desert shrub. It's a symbol of being out in the desert. The word that's translated here, briar, is actually a nettle, which, not surprisingly, symbolizes pain and comes from a root word meaning to wail. This is a plant that causes you to wail, a plant which causes tears. But that goes, and the citrus and the myrtle are evergreens, symbols of growth and of life and of beauty. The curse has been reversed. Understand this, without the word of God, you are in a cycle of decay where you will never get away from cancer. You will never get away from illness. You will never get away from sin and its consequences. Never. 
But once you hear the word of God, it works like rain and snow. And as you believe and receive, there is a renewal that takes place. Which means at some point they will go away from you. It is the ultimate in environmentalism as well. I'd like to say more about this, but time has gone. All I want to say is this. If you really care for planet Earth, then you return to the Lord. You cannot be green without God. But if you have God, you will be green. Let the heavens rejoice, says the psalmist. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Long before James Lovelock thought of Gaia and everything else, the Bible was telling us the earth is living and praises God. And until we return to God, it will never, ever be whole. So let me finish with saying there's a degree of urgency here. We'll go on to the next, the last verses, just from Jeremiah. There are decisions to be made. The party is ready. The feast is ready. The invites are sent out. And they have to be responded to because the invitation is not indefinite. There is an RSVP and there is a closing date. We don't know when the closing date is, but for you, it could be today. Who knows? There is a time of favor. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. We call upon him while he was near. John L. says this, the greatest The grandest promises and commitments of others are of no benefit to us if we fail to act upon them. The door of opportunity may lie open before us, but we still have to go through it in order to gain any advantage. As the gospel message comes to us today, we have to take care that we are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, causing us to put off our response to a more suitable opportunity. Our responsibility is to hear that we may live. We recognize the inadequacy of any response we make. We say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But we must not toy with God. We must not pretend. God has been so gracious to you. God has brought you his word in the midst of a land where there is a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. There's an oasis here. And we sing God's praise. We share together. But it really all stems from this. The fruitfulness stems from the word of God. And you, in order to enjoy that, you must give up your own autonomy. You must turn to Christ and say, here I am, Lord. I don't understand all this. I don't know all this. I don't grasp all this. But I give it all to you. And those of us who are Christians, please don't sit back and go, Yeah, I got that. Suss that. Really. God's thoughts are not your thoughts. And one of the reasons that you struggle so much is you keep thinking that God is like you. And he's not. He is far more beautiful, far more wonderful than you could ever imagine. And even in the midst of the most extraordinary pain and the most overwhelming discouragement and depression and the most frightening fears, you can turn 
and you can say, but Lord, you're not like that. And I want to know you and I believe you and I seek you with my whole heart. Lord, thank you for your word. Bless it to us. Help us to apply it and help us just to trust you absolutely. We are not good, you are. We don't know the whole future, you do. We can't make strategies for our lives. We've got enough trouble to deal with today, but we trust you absolutely. And we know that in the end, all things work for the good of those who love you. May it be that each person here will truly love you and give themselves to you this day. In your name, amen. We're going to finish by singing the song, You're the Word of God the Father. And there is a common mistake that's often made that people go, oh, you're always talking about words and the Word of God, and I believe in Jesus. You need to understand Jesus is the Word, and He communicates Himself through His, his Word. It goes together, and uh, that's what we need, the Word. So let's stand and sing, you're the Word of God the Father, and please remain standing for the benediction. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.